church. I'm really glad that you could join us in worship this morning. Really glad too for those of you who are watching it online. Uh, we miss you. We look forward to the day when we can all, all gather here together. Um, if you're a guest this morning, we're really glad that you braved the insanity, came out and joined us this morning, especially and hopefully after the service, if you feel comfortable, you'll join us out in the courtyard. We'll get to know you a little better, get acquainted just a wee bit. We'd love to do that. North Wake Church is a church plant. Uh, about 30 years ago, there were a, a small band of believers who lived in Wake Forest but traveled into Raleigh to attend Providence Baptist Church. Stuart and Ann Bowman were amongst that group. They had a dream to plant a church in Wake Forest, and that gave birth to North Wake Church that you experience, and those of you who are part of our family know and love week in and week out. As a result of that DNA, we are a church that plants churches. Uh, we we want to give this blessing an even greater blessing to communities where gospel preaching, Christ-loving churches are needed. And it's our privilege as a church family to have done that in places like Tampa and D.C. and here locally in Rollsville and Raleigh and in, uh, most recently out in, in Denver, uh, Colorado. They are meeting this morning for one of their first gatherings out there as they uh, gather together. Um, but our, our our privilege is to, this morning to let you know formally about a new church plant that we get to be part of in Richmond, Virginia. Um, Jacob and Vickery Jackson, God has burdened their heart to start a new work there called Covenant Life Church. We'll be in a community called Lakeside there in Richmond. And uh, Jacob was on staff here, some of you remember, uh, as part of our pastoral staff here at North Wake served in our student ministry, survived student ministry, qualifies him to be a church planter. So uh, we're, we're really excited about, about that. Our, our elders and me in particular have a long-standing relationship with Jacob and Vickery. We, we love them. We believe God has called them to this work. And as a church family, I want to invite you to, to engage as fully as God asks of you to be in support of this, whether that's prayer or resource, financial resources, they're raising support to do this work, or God might ask you to move to Richmond and be part of this new work that he's doing there, and uh, I can't tell you how excited we would be for some of you rascals to move to Virginia, so I'll single you out after, after the service, those of you who I have in mind, but um, Jacob and Vickery, we love you guys, why don't you come down, we want to give you a charge from the scriptures and pray for you, and... Uh, I'll invite your team that's come with you. You guys can wait. We'll invite you down in just a minute. Jake and Vickery, why don't you guys come down first? And then they, they have a part of their core group is here this morning, which we're really excited about, that they don't have to do this work alone from the beginning. You can stand right down here and face me, and I'll give you a charge from the scriptures, and then, then we'll invite some folks to come down and pray for you guys. Um, it begins from the Apostle Paul and then from, from Peter. It goes like this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, 
Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Peter charges you, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. May these things mark your ministry. May God bless you in this new work. We're, we're so excited about what he's gonna do. And so at this time, I think, if I, do I have any elders present in the service who could come down and we will uh, run the risk of laying hands on these people and uh, not because of Jacob, because of COVID, but we'll, we'll run that risk. We're gonna run that risk too. And yeah, if you guys that are here, part of this team from Richmond, we will uh, invite you guys to come down, stand with them. And if you're a North Waker, you love Jacob and Victor, you sense God wants you to be a part of this in some way, just come down here and kind of space yourself out appropriately around them. If you want to be part of it in prayer or, or giving or even considering going, we'd invite you to come and stand with them at this point in time. And uh, church, we'd, uh, we'd like to undertake this as a church family. That we are together committing to send love serve, bless this new work. So church, let's bow together. Let's pray God's richest blessing on these. Lord, some, some 30-ish years ago, a band of people were sent out just like this and we, we experience the blessing of that every week, every day. And so God, we would ask for even greater blessing to come in the years ahead in Richmond because of this band of believers, of Jacob and Vickery and these who stand with them and those who've gathered with them in Richmond. God bless them, use them greatly. As we just heard read though, Satan seeking someone to devour, we pray that he would devour none in this fellowship. Especially for Jacob and Vickery, we pray your protection on their home from the evil one. Lord, that you would be their strong tower, their mighty fortress. Oh God, Bless their marriage. Bless their children. Use them greatly. And Lord, we commit this work to you for your namesake. Be exalted in Lakeside. Be exalted high and draw men and women to yourself. And so we ask this richest of blessings upon these who stand here and those who gather with them in Richmond. And we ask this in Christ's great name for his sake. Amen. Amen. You all can return to you. All right, um, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, so open your Bibles um, to Mark chapter 8. Believe it or not, we're already over halfway through the book. We are in chapter 8 um, this morning. And to kind of get us oriented, let me remind you something that many of you um, are, are familiar with. Back in 1973, there was a 26-year-old movie director named Steven Spielberg 
who was hired to make a movie based on a novel about shark attacks. It was called Jaws. And this movie continues to terrify us to this day, right? If you even hear a rumor that there might be a shark at the beach where you're going to vacation, your vacation might turn into a staycation. Which, interestingly enough, according to the uh, recent, some studies that were done um, in an article in Foreign Policy Magazine a few years back, uh, your staycation may be more dangerous than a vacation where there were, in fact, a shark attack. The article posits that less than one person a year is killed by a shark attack. 0.92 was the statistic at the time. And the article went on to list 10 things that are more dangerous than a shark attack. So here they are. Trampolines. Uh, Trampolines account for 1.1 deaths per year. Uh, Roller coasters take, uh, barely edge out trampolines. Um, Slightly over 1.1 people die there. Freestanding kitchen ranges. Um, They are more dangerous than all these other things because they tip over on occasion. Vending machines have also been known to tip over when people are trying to get a freebie out of it. Um, Two people a year give their life for a free candy bar. Um, Riding lawnmowers take about five lives a year. Uh, Fireworks bump up to about six. Skydiving jumps way up to about 21 people. Um, This lady's probably one of them. Uh, Give their lives, at least she feels like it. And then, um, but the highest of all 10 of these is being crushed by televisions or furniture, okay? Maybe not that television, but some of your televisions are maybe more dangerous than a shark attack, okay? Often it seems we're afraid of the wrong things and so the things that are really dangerous to us, we overlook. And that seems to be Jesus' concern in our passage today in Mark chapter 8. So let me just invite you, uh, let me pray for us one more time to receive the word well. And then our kids video that our kids volunteers put together every week will orient us to the passage today. So pray with me as we open up the scriptures together. Lord, come now and bless us. Help us see Jesus for who he is, that we might love him all the more. Even in this small video, Lord, Show us Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. One day, a great crowd had come to listen to Jesus teach for three whole days. At the end of the three days, Jesus called the disciples to meet with him. Jesus wanted the disciples to get food for the people because they had been with him for so long and he was worried that they might faint on their way home. It was a long walk after all. In response, the disciples asked him, How can we feed this many people? There's nothing here for them. Jesus asked, How many loaves of bread do you have? And the disciples responded, We have seven. So Jesus had them gather the food and he told the whole crowd to sit down. He gave thanks with the seven loaves and also a couple small fish. And then he gave the food to the disciples and they handed it out to 4,000 people. After everyone had eaten, they collected all the leftovers and they filled up seven whole baskets worth of bread and fish. After these events, the disciples and Jesus went to an area called Dalmanutha. While there, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, asking for Jesus to show a sign from heaven. Jesus sighed, 
and he told them that no sign will be given to this generation. And he got in a boat and went to the other side. What's up guys, recap time. You know how this works. If you know the answer to the question we ask, shout it out, okay? Question one, how many days had the crowd come to listen to Jesus? If you said three, you're right. Number two, another number question. How many people did Jesus feed? That's right, about 4,000 in total. It's quite a bit. While we're at it, how about another number question? After everybody had eaten the fish and the bread, how many baskets of extra food did the disciples collect? That's right, seven whole baskets of bread and fish. Last question, guys. This one's a little bit harder. So when Jesus and the disciples made it to Dalmanutha, what did the Pharisees want Jesus to show them? A sign from heaven. But he told them, this generation will receive no such thing. Thanks, guys. As always, we enjoyed it, and we hope to see you next week. Goodbye. All right, so our passage begins with that story of the feeding of the 4,000, the miraculous feeding of 4,000 people by Jesus with only seven loaves of bread and a handful of fish. Now, if you've been tracking with us through our study of the Gospel of Mark, that story should sound very familiar to you. Because if you were just back up a page swipe or two in your Bibles, um, Jesus just miraculously fed in chapter 6 5,000 men okay, and countless more women and children. Again, with a handful of loaves of bread and fish. So this story is a virtual do-over of what Mark just told us. But the disciples, it seems, have a really bad case of miracle amnesia. And so they need this, as we'll see. Listen again to the story. It starts in verse 1, chapter 8. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, Jesus said that these also should be set before the people. So at this point in time, the disciples ought to be having some kind of a deja vu, haven't we been here before kind of experience, right? Too many people, not enough food, in the middle of nowhere, Jesus asks us to feed them. There's not a food line for miles. So it's a do-over for the disciples, okay? And they fail it miserably just like the first time. And yet notice that Jesus at this point is really patient. There's no rebuke for these guys. 
He simply demonstrates again his ability to care and provide. Takes the little bread they have and the few fish and he satisfies them all, all 4,000. Verse eight, they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, went to the district of Dalmanutha. So why would Mark, who's the shortest of biographies of Jesus, why would he bother to include a very similar picnic miracle just two pages after he just did one, right? Um, the 4,000, right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Let me give you three good reasons. First of all, the feeding of the 5,000 predominantly takes, play, takes place in predominantly Jewish territory. The feeding of the 4,000 likely takes place in predominantly Gentile territory. Mark is showing us here that Jesus isn't just the Messiah for the Jews, but for all peoples. He's come to satisfy every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, And this is a central reason why racism is so troubling for a Christian, right? Because Jesus has come for us all, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He fed the 4,000 in Gentile territory. This story is included to show us the breadth of Jesus' compassion. It's for all peoples. And that leads us to kind of a second reason this story is told. It puts on display Jesus' compassion, especially his compassion for people who are suffering physically particularly for people who are hungry. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Compassion. Compassion, that language, it's it's a deep-seated, gut-wrenching kind of caring. Jesus cares deeply simply because these people are hungry. And so here Jesus sanctions Christian ministry to the hungry. The principle is broader than that for sure, but he definitely has compassion on people who simply aren't getting enough to eat and it's a Christ-like thing to care for them. Think of our feed ministry right across the way over here that cares for people who are short on food every week. That's a very Christ-like thing. Pastor Kevin Miller tells a, a beautiful, humble story about his mom in this regard. He says, when I was in junior high and high school, We had a neighbor two doors down named Beard Miller. And since his wife had died, he had lived on his own. Then he developed a nasty case of painful shingles, which is a rash that has shooting pain associated with it. One day my mom was praying and she heard the Lord say to her, feed the hungry. She thought, how can I feed the hungry? And then she realized I could make dinner and send it down the street for Beard. And so every night, he says, she would make an extra amount for dinner. About six o'clock, when we were ready to sit down for dinner, she would put together a plate with Beard's dinner, a small bowl of salad, a small plate with dessert, and she would load all that into a large cardboard box lid that functioned as a serving tray, cover it with foil or a dish towel to keep it warm, and then she'd look at me and say, would you carry this down to Beard? And I would walk down the street, knock on his door, wait while he hobbled over and opened it, and Beard always got a big smile when he saw me because he knew this is by far the best meal of my day. 
and said, my mom did that every single night, even when she was traveling, she figured out a way for Beard to get a meal. For three years, until Beard's health declined and he had to go to a nursing home, she obeyed what the Lord had asked and she fed the hungry. And I love the simplicity and the humility of that. And this year, as we're seeking to engage our community in the midst of a, a pandemic engagement challenging time, um, maybe you could do a simple act like this. Show the compassion of Christ to a neighbor in need with a sanctified, degermified, pandemic certified meal, right? Well, however that works, however that looks. But maybe God is asking you to do this. The last reason Mark includes this that I'll share with you this morning is it shows us who Jesus really is. We've already alluded to it. He's the Messiah for all peoples. He's the one who can satisfy us all. As John's gospel would record it, he's the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the one who satisfies in abundance to excess. And when you take these two picnic miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, and you put them together, the portrait of Jesus is stunning. He's compassionate. Look, chapter 6, when he went ashore because he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. Chapter 8, I have compassion on the crowd. He's the one who satisfies. In chapter 6, they all ate and were satisfied. Chapter 8, they all ate and were satisfied. Satisfied, to, there's excess left over. In chapter 6, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And in chapter 8, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Jesus is the Lord of creation and compassion who satisfies the hungry soul to excess, more than we need. And surely, you would think, the disciples, having gotten a do-over like this, would get it, right? That's not exactly the way it works. Um, Pastor Dale, or Professor Dale Bruner puts it beautifully. He says, the disciples keep forgetting that Jesus is special. Jesus' humanity and lack of errors apparently so disarm even disciples that they consistently forget what manner of man they're dealing with. Faith needs to keep pinching itself, he said. So just reach over and pinch your neighbor. No, I'm just messing with you. You can't social distance and pinch, so we'll, we'll let, let that one go this morning. But we do have to keep who Jesus is, truly is, before us daily. And this is another reason why daily time in the Word is a non-negotiable for a Christ follower. Daily time in the Word is a non-negotiable for a Christ follower. Okay. Now the Pharisees make another appearance in this story. In verse 11, the Pharisees came, began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So on the heels of this great miracle where 4,000 people are miraculously fed from seven loaves, the Pharisees come in, totally ignore it, and ask for a sign. 
A sign is like a miracle on steroids that will remove all doubt that you're sent from God. It also removes the need for any faith that you are sent from God. And they were simply testing Jesus, it says. That language of testing, it's the same language that was used back in chapter 1 to describe Satan tempting Jesus. Clearly, the Pharisees are not asking honest questions. They are aligning themselves with Satan's camp opposed to Jesus. And when Jesus says, this generation gets no sign, he's not necessarily talking about the generation in that day. He's talking, he's associating them with an expression in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where Moses spoke about this generation, called the people a crooked and twisted generation because they turned to other gods. Jesus refuses to grant a sign to those who are aligned with the devil himself in seeking to lead people away from him. And he physically leaves these skeptics, gets in the boat, goes to the other side of the lake. And now that the Pharisees are out of the picture, Jesus' attention turns back to the other side, to back to the disciples rather. And Jesus is still thinking about the Pharisees though. And he warns his disciples about them. Look at verse 14. Now that they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he continued, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus is warning them about the subtle danger of insidious unbelief. And they are fussing, the disciples are fussing about forgetting their lunch. The disciples' dullness here brings about a loving but stinging rebuke from Jesus, one of his strongest towards his disciples that I can remember. He peppers them with handfuls of penetrating questions. Look at verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Okay. Jesus is concerned about unbelief subtly infiltrating their hearts and they're concerned about who forgot the lunch. Their lesser concern about lunch, which is something Jesus just miraculously showed his great concern about twice, that lesser concern obscures Jesus' far greater concern in their minds. Jesus is concerned they're being stalked by evil unbelief. And their lack of trust in his compassionate, caring provision has made them distracted and vulnerable to greater dangers. Right at the center of his rebuke, Jesus asked this critical question in verse 18. Do you not remember? He asked his disciples, do you not remember? How can you be so dense and forgetful and not remember how I cared for you? And so at this point in time, it's mirror time for us, right? 
you hold up the mirror and you look into it because we are these disciples, right? God provides for us in amazing ways. A little time passes, we have a need come up and we forget all about how God has provided for us, right? Um, Professor Bruner again schools us when he says there's a theological truth in this story that supersedes history. Disciples almost always forget Jesus' competence. One purpose for the almost back-to-back feedings in Mark 6 and 8 surely is to underline the obtuseness of Christians. Jesus miraculously meets a human crisis in Mark 6, time passes, and then an almost identical crisis comes in Mark 8, and we seem to have forgotten everything we just learned. Isn't Mark teaching a doctrine of Christian amnesia here? Okay. We are a forgetful people. Don't you remember, Jesus says to his disciples, and he's saying that to us. Don't you remember how I provided for you, the compassion that I had for you in your time of need? And because we too suffer from Christian amnesia, we can be vulnerable to the unbelief of our culture, and it finds its way into our hearts and minds. And so we care more about our retirement growing than we do about our faith growing. We care more about keeping than giving. We care more about having more than enough than we do about being generous enough. Do you remember how Jesus has cared and provided for you? Do you ever rehearse that and give thanks? And of course, the foundation of our remembering faith is the way God provided for his people in the scriptures. Do you remember Do you have a practice of remembering that's anchored in daily reading of the scriptures? C.S. Lewis wrote, one must train the habit of faith by making sure that some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So are you feeding the truth of who Jesus is, especially his compassionate care and provision for people in need? Are you keeping that before you daily? How can you remember if you don't? You'll be swept away by the flood of unbelief in our day. Now, in the midst of this stinging rebuke for his disciples, um, Jesus includes a little word of hope for those of us who are thick and slow disciples. It's in verse 21. Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? Not yet, but someday his disciples are going to get it, right? Someday, there's hope that they will yet believe that they're going to get it. They're going to understand who Jesus is and why they should trust him fully. And that's how this story connects to the last one we'll look at in the next few verses. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So once again, we see how Jesus cares. This time in response to a group of friends or perhaps family who bring a man they care for to Jesus to be healed just by Jesus' touch. And Jesus joins their compassion to his and he heals this blind man and gives him back his sight. Not instantaneously, but fully. And we learn here that not all of Jesus' healing work is instantaneous. It can come in stages. It's interesting, Mark inserts this story here right after the story of the disciples' spiritual blindness. Remember back in verse 18, he says, having eyes, do you not see? So he is showing us that spiritual sight is not always given instantaneously either. It comes in stages. We're all in process. The disciples are in process. They see poorly. They trust feebly. But after his death and resurrection, they're going to see clearly who Jesus is and they'll trust him all the more. So Jesus is bringing wholeness here physically, but it also sees that he's going to mature us spiritually. He's not giving up on this man. He's not going to give up on his dull disciples. He's not going to give up on you and me. By his mercy, we will yet understand. Now, let me leave you with a kind of an interesting thought this morning as, as we prepare to wrap up. Um, compare these two verses um, together and what they say about the bread the disciples have in the boat. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Just two verses later we read, they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So did they have a loaf of bread in the boat or not, okay? Mark says in verse 14, they had only one loaf. The disciples discuss in verse 16 that they have no bread. How does that work? Um, Professor David Garland sketches out an interesting theory that I'll let you think about as we close. He says, most likely, Mark teases the reader by elusively referring to Jesus as that one loaf. Jesus is the one loaf in the boat. Mark wants them to recognize Jesus as that one loaf who can multiply one into an abundance of loaves to feed thousands and satisfy them all. Let's pray. Pray together about that as we wrap up our time. Jesus, help us to remember that you are in the boat with us. That you are the one, the one who satisfies us. That what you provide for us is enough. We don't have to go beyond your caring provision for us. Help us, deliver us from worry or fear about what we will need, what we will eat, where we will live, how we will work. Lord, help us to learn the lesson of the feeding and trust you to be our provider for our bodies and our souls. And Lord, help us to beware of the leaven of unbelief that is stalking us. 
And so, Lord, we pray as you taught us, give us this day our daily bread. For this bread, we trust you. Lord, you have promised good to us. Your word, our hope, secures. You will our shield and portion be as long as life endures. So stand with me.